Last week, we launched an updated website. Go check it out. Our new site shows how engineers and purchasing teams can easily manufacture their electronics products with Macrofab. We have pages dedicated to the needs of double E's and purchasing teams with a brand new capability section that outlines all of our services from PCB assembly to full product assembly and testing. Lastly, we have a section that talks about our Macrofab factory network and how that allows you to get to market faster. Visit MacFab.com to learn more. Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Jeff Garoon. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 189. Jeff Garoon is a Y Combinator alumni from the winter 2016 batch and currently serves as COO of Flow Command. At Flow Command, he is responsible for our all hardware design, firmware development, and operations. Jeff spent his early career as a production engineer and lead completion engineer at Oxy USA. He has been on Y Combinator's alumni application review committee for the last three cohorts has raised three rounds of financing and manages a staff of 17 engineers. Jeff is also a member of Incubate USC, where he has assisted in writing undergraduate coursework on accelerators and incubators. Thank you, Jeff, for uh, opening our podcast and uh, coming on to speak today. Yeah, glad to be with you guys. Um, So my first question, though, is what is Y Combinator for people that don't know what that is? Sure. So Y Combinator is uh, is a startup accelerator. That's essentially a three month long program uh, based in in San Francisco and in, in the Valley uh, that takes early stage companies and helps make them better. Um, so you've you've probably heard of a few bigger name companies that have come through there, like Stripe, Airbnb, Dropbox, uh, for example. Um, and it's a it's a fantastic program uh, that that I would cur- encourage every startup to take a look at if they have, haven't heard of it before. And so, what is Flow Command? So, Flow Command makes sensors and software for oil and gas companies. And so, essentially, these companies have a huge amount of assets that are kind of spread out in the middle of nowhere, and and they're very difficult to access. And so, we give them very lightweight sensors that are cloud connected that allow them to see kind of everything that's happening on those assets uh, from their phone or computer or, or anywhere they have access to the internet. And so you've been, uh, you've led the development of all the, uh, the actual products at flow command, right? Correct. Yes. It's, uh, it's been quite a journey for sure. We, we uh, still have some, some uh, dinosaur bones of our, of our old products that we leave on the shelf um, and so it's really fun to, to go back and, and look at those devices compared to, uh, the, you know, the types of things that we're, that we're putting on the market now and, and that we're, uh, developing for future use. Um, but, uh, industrial hardware is, is really hard. Um, and so, uh, we, we try and have as much fun as we can doing it. So I guess that leads right into our conversation today, which is industrial product design and testing. So what makes a product an industrial device? Besides just saying it's an industrial device. <laughs> yeah, I think industrial is a descriptor that largely relates to a device's purpose. 
And so when you think about, you know, what, what I think about as kind of the quintessential consumer electronic is a smartwatch because um, it's very lightweight. People are fairly familiar with them at this point. And so this is a consumer electronic that, that uh, takes a very different form factor than industrial uh, devices. It has a very different purpose. And so it's, in some ways, it's kind of the antithesis of what we think of as industrial devices. And so industrial devices generally serve a purpose that relates to manufacture or process, things like this, um, that, that are largely being sold for the most part to, uh, to other businesses instead of consumers. So the end use and, and the end uh, buyer are, are very different types of profiles. I also think there's there's a, a bit of um, a concept behind the word industrial that that kind of relates to the word robustness. You know, uh, industrial means like more bulletproof in a way. For sure, very much so. It's um, in the industrial hardware space, though it may be quite a bit less sexy than than a smartwatch is. It's actually, you know, we're afforded some things that that the consumer space is not. We have space, which is really great uh, when developing products because um, it allows us to uh, be able to QAQC thing, you know, to quality check things easier, to assemble them easier. You're talking about uh, like the overall volume of the product. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know the the sexiness of the of the enclosure, for example, you know matters quite a bit less uh, in in a, a, a beautiful consumer device versus. Uh, you know, uh, just a, a generic off-the-shelf enclosure that might go into uh, a manufacturing plant. And so, you know, the way that that design uh, of hardware gets approached in, in industrial places is very different in the sense that we largely start from the exterior and say, you know, this is what our box needs to be to, 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 for, you know, to, to fulfill some specific requirement. And then we pack basically as much as we possibly can, you know, into those boxes um, to make them as useful as possible. And so, you know, when you think of, uh, of satellites and, and other, you know, space-related equipment that's going up now, you know, these are types of devices that, that also take the industrial approach in the sense that they're allocated X, Y, and Z dimensions, and they fit as much as they can into that box. Hmm. That's interesting. So, when when developing a new product or or even coming up with a revision to a current product, uh, do you tend to start with a function list and then develop around that, or are you saying like, here's my main singular function? I have a box that fits that. How else can I fill this out? Yeah, for sure, function takes the the precedent there uh, for for a huge uh, part of of the process. Um, particularly early on in the development. And, and it changes a little bit maybe later on um, as you're kind of refining things. Uh, but for the most part, when so particularly as an early stage startup um, and developing industrial hardware, our only purpose is to fulfill some specific function or, or perform some specific function, whether that is something on the digital side, you know, communication related, that's one piece, uh, whether it's a sensing piece on the analog side, that, that's another kind of totally different category. But, but very much what we think about when it comes to success or performance metric is, is, is more driven by function than it is, you know, making the device one inch smaller. Uh, whereas, you know, if you think about an iPhone or something like that, 
you know, one millimeter is, is an enormous deal there. And for us, I don't particularly care about one meter, one millimeter in any direction. Um, so it makes things, you know, actually really nice and neat um, to be able to have that flexibility. For sure, for sure. And, and, and you know, going back to the, the kind of the word I used earlier, robustness, like that can yeah. also drive a significant portion of it. I mean, you, you can have in an industrial device, you, it is possible to have uh, a bit of open and blank space in there if that means that you are achieving that robustness that is expected. In an ideal world, that would be the case. And when, you know, when I think about designing devices and, and how our economics, you know, internally work, it becomes favorable to have devices that last basically as long as possible. However, we all kind of know that there are plenty of businesses out there that, that want you to be rebuying equipment every X amount of years. Um, and, you know, there are, there are a good handful of, of very big companies um, this is this is really prevalent in, in the airline industry, actually, where for the most part, the equipment, you know, the engines for an airplane are, are almost given away basically at cost or maybe at some small loss. And and most of the revenue of those of those companies is actually generated in servicing and repairs and things like that. Um, so in an ideal case, yes, I, I would for sure agree, you know, that that we build really robust things that last forever um, and, and anything kind of. That, that deviates from that plan is largely just driven by business decisions, um, not necessarily by the best uh, hardware engineers uh, and, and, and engineering <laughs> that's out there. So sure. um, going off the like your function dictates your form, basically, like how big a device is and stuff like yeah. that. It, it kind of plays into Steven's current project. Uh, he's building <laughs> a really fancy fermentator for beer brewing. Cool. And the all it's a ginormous box and the only thing driving the box size is what steven so okay well it's it's two things but they're both connected um i i very much wanted all of the input outputs on this device to be on one side of a box cool and with the size of all of the connectors and everything in in a line like that just forces the size of the box to be large in one direction. Yep. Well, all the boxes that are available with that size in one in one axis are large in the other axis too. So, yep. that, you know. But but yep. but th- th- those are the decisions you make when de- designing these kinds of things. I wanted everything to be on one side of the box. If I was fine with it not being on one side of the box, I could probably make this half as large, you know. For sure. And you know, this is a really interesting point actually because the the types of issues that I think people encounter in their home or hobbyist or, you know, hardware hacker related problems are almost exactly the same as the problems that we encounter, you know, at low volumes, particularly uh, in, in industrial hardware. In that, um, for some cases in prototyping, it's totally acceptable to go to 3D prints for certain things, but... Once you cross some specific volume threshold, then that doesn't really become very feasible. If you have to go outdoors, 3D printing you know, gets uh, a little bit less attractive. And if you actually have to perform some mechanical functions, it also becomes less attractive. And so you, you end up getting forced to this kind of next stage of prototyping, so to speak, when you go from like a homebrew project 
um, you know, and, and transitioning that into an actual product on the market. And so the next step of that to me is, is essentially um, going to a lot of these, you know, off the shelf manufacturers for certain things. And so whereas we may have, you know, uh, to, to keep using uh, your example, Stephen, whereas we may have, uh, you know, put some two by fours together or, or something like that to, to make our initial enclosure just to see kind of what the dimensions look like. The next step is, is to go and, and look at enclosure manufacturers um, and see, you know, what those companies have off the shelf. And there are, you know, at least at this moment, four of them off the top of my head that are very large in the United States that do semi-custom work, which means, you know, they have kind of a blank slate and you can choose where you want your CNC holes, if you want countersinks in there, if you want screen printing. And so, like, this is very much the, the next step. Uh, of transitioning a product, you know, from kind of a uh, a homebrew, no pun intended, um, into something that actually uh, hits the market is is to basically go and look for these companies that have a, a huge amount of manufacturing capacity that that uh, that you kind of don't have access to at at the scale that you know sub one thousand unit kind of scale. I um, mean, we've had a huge amount of success working with some of these semi custom uh, uh, suppliers and manufacturers. So speaking of prototyping, how do you start prototyping an an industrial piece of hardware? I know that's like very broad because industrial hardware is like the the, the scope of that is ginormous. But I guess let's talk more about like uh, industrial hardware in terms of IoT devices, which is what Flow Command does. Yeah. So we generally start this process with a basic block diagram. And so we have to understand what the functional components are that need to exist in the system to fulfill whatever requirements uh, exist. And so we then take that and basically take each block of that functional diagram and figure out some very easily accessible off-the-shelf way to start doing something with it. Now, we know that whatever we're going to end up doing to, to, to get started is not going to be the, you know, the final form uh, or, or chip or whatever we end up using. Uh, but, but we've got to start doing something because there's only so much you can actually learn from looking at a data sheet of anything, right? You've got to get your hands dirty on it. And so going and prototyping and, and um, starting to do something as soon as possible is, is really critical. So generally, there are a lot of breakout boards and kind of Arduino related peripherals that exist and are very, you know, off the shelf. You can buy them and and ship them overnight um, anywhere in the U.S. That is by far the easiest way to get started in transitioning a block diagram on a sheet of paper into a physical thing that actually works. Um, And so, you know, I I always encourage people to go and and you don't even really have to scour the internet to find a a gyroscope breakout board that already has an off-the-shelf library from from a chip that you can buy from any of the major U.S. distributors that will allow you to just kind of crank something out very quickly in in the Arduino IDE and and see how it works and and be able to move it around and and look at a serial print um, on your computer. So that's very much step one is do something as quickly as possible and and really utilize off the shelf resources kind of to their to their maximum extent. You do not want to conversely go and hire someone to uh draw out a, a custom schematic and a custom footprint for a custom circuit board 
um, and make custom silicon that you'll end up going and, and putting on that ship, you can go as overboard as you possibly could think about for something like this. Um, but it's really important to, 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 to iterate very quickly. You know, one of our, in, in the startup community, you know, one of our biggest challenges in being a hardware company is the iteration cycle. If you're a software company, you can spin up code and push it almost instantaneously. And for us, you know, having to live in, in the physical space, it's our goal to try to emulate those quick iteration cycles as much as we can. And though it's almost impossible that we'll ever reach there, it's, it's the right thing to try and strive for. Yeah, it's what the saying in software startups is uh, move fast, break things. Right. But in hardware, it's move fast, break things, and then solder a lot of green wire. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can feel that pain in a big way. Yep. So actually, the it's funny how you bring up Arduino stuff. Like when I'm looking for like a chip to try out, um, and I find the one I want, I actually will search that. And instead of that work, like like eighteen mega, let's just say example eighteen mega three eight twenty eight p. And that's a microcontroller, but um, that and then plus like breakout gets less hits than like that chip number plus like Arduino. Like plugging that into eBay is probably the quickest way to find like a circuit board that's already got it on there. Yep, for sure. And, and I think, uh, you know, the Arduino community is extremely extensive and comprehensive and responsive. Um, and, and anyone that is trying to learn any type of firmware development or, or hardware development, there, there's really no other place to start than, than in the Arduino community. You know, I'll tell you, the first devices that we shipped to, to, to big companies still had at Mega 2560s in them. And you cannot be afraid of that chip because it is so well known and so well defined, you know, the deficiencies and problems there. Um, and frankly, most projects that, that people are working on, that chip is perfectly suitable. Or, or even, you know, uh, an Uno style chip is, is totally suitable. I think the, you know, in the industrial space, there is um, uh, a tendency to, to probably move towards overcomplicated chips or, or, or rather, you know, get away from the Arduino community because it feels like it's, it's very hobbyist. Um, but frankly, by doing that, you can add so much more complexity that's unnecessary to your project. Um, and, and frankly, you can do almost anything that any industrial company is, is going to, is going to have a need for in, in a very, very simple chipset that you've got bootloaders and, and libraries for off the shelf. Um, and the more custom stuff you have to do in general, the slower you're going to be. And it's much, much more important to get equipment into these customers' hands to understand what's actually important to them than for you to be sitting and spinning your wheels and trying to think about what you believe to be what's important to them. Market fit. Exactly. Yep. Get it as quickly as possible. And so an MVP with an Arduino chip is, is great. It's a great place to start. Well, okay, so so that does bring up some interesting questions because uh, I'm looking a little bit down our notes, so I'm I'm kind of cheating here. But uh, okay. I I see that uh, I see that I, some of your products have uh, some pretty hefty certifications on them, yeah. uh, some stuff that brings up some nightmares from the past, some class one div one stuff. Now I don't know the answer to this, but if if I, I my gut feel is if if you ever showed up to uh, to a testing house with a Arduino Uno inside of a box, there ain't no way that's gonna pass. Um, 
any kind of testing. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I agree. Like, it's great to, to get, you know, kind of scratch down on paper, get a, you know, I get a sketch together, right? With a, with Arduino, that's fantastic. But eventually you do have to migrate that to an actual board that, um, is designed to be able to pass tests, right? Um, hopefully uh, your company grows to the point where that will make economic sense for, for sure. That's, that's definitely the goal. And, one of the nice things about kind of building off of this platform is that that transition is actually generally a very seamless one. Um, you know, with respect to bringing very simple, you know, off the shelf chipsets into a certification environment, it kind of depends on what you are trying to get certified or what you need to get certified. Um, I take that as a bit of a challenge. I actually would be curious if I could get an Arduino Uno certified <laughs> inside some kind of, of, of enclosure. That, that'd be a really interesting challenge to go after. Um, and, I, and I bet that it could be done. Uh, it would be almost definitely a first for, for any of the, of the certifying agencies. Um, however, I, I, I bet you they've yeah. seen it, though. I, I bet you they have. I, I would bet so, and, and I bet that a substantial... Uh, substantially larger volume of, uh, you know, some of the vacuum cleaners and other, you know, consumer grade devices that, that we use every day do contain AVR pick related, uh, type microcontrollers in them. And, uh, you know, these, uh, all of these functions started, uh, with, uh, with a simple board, with a simple board and, and a breakout board for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they're very accessible for sure. And are certified, I should say. Uh, I've actually written an article about, like, if you're prototyping on Arduino and then moving to a product, like, what parts of the Arduino you actually need and how you transfer that over to a, to a new schematic and layout. So, Yep, for sure. There I mean, is actually... Not, yeah, go ahead. I, I think Steven's thinking, like, when you build your in, actual industrial device, like, the Arduino or the Uno, so to speak, is still in there. Whereas usually you you do embed the, mic, the microcontroller onto the PCB. Well, and that no, that's what I was getting at. Uh, you know, eventually you have to get away from the Uno form factor uh, because you would want to eventually get your product certified. And, and I really doubt that the Uno inside of a box would get certified. I don't I don't know the answer to that. Like I said, but uh, but you know, and it may be something where you put an exact three twenty eight P down on on your board and run it effectively like an Arduino, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that um but but you also might port to something else that ha that is you know cheaper or is a little bit more stripped down and directly related to what you're going for you know there's a lot of options in that i, I guess i was just kind of going at the idea that um well let me give let me bring up an interesting yeah. story real quick i i actually visited a satellite manufacturer uh here in colorado and uh, swear to god there was an arduino uno you know screwed down into the chassis with uh with connectors on it and and it did get sent to space and it did its thing you know uh so like it's not like impossible like, and 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 the, the funny thing is all the designers in there were all like they were the kind of guys that you would expect would fit the senior engineer uh quality level and whatnot but all of them were like we needed something fast we needed something that would work it didn't have to be like it's not ripping at a gigahertz, so it fit the bill, you know? Right, for sure. I, uh, it, it, it's funny you mention that because this first device of ours, our you know, Gen Zero, which is maybe even a generous term, uh, device, 
that we uh, that we put into the field. I, I actually remember about two days leading up to demo day at Y Combinator, sitting on the floor of, of YC headquarters, um, mocking up uh, in SolidWorks our enclosure, which is an off-the-shelf enclosure that I ended up uh, spray painting about fifty of. Um, so I'm very good at spray painting now. Um, but mocking up, you know, the interior of that enclosure, which was essentially a metal plate that also came off the shelf from, from the enclosure company. And on that metal plate were some rubber feet and screwed down into that was a mega with a board sandwiched on top of it. Then we had a a modem wired together, you know, with just basic screw terminals kind of right next to it. Um, and so, you know, this was kind of the, the step in between, you know, using uh, just strictly uh, a, a Mega or an Uno um, and, and going with a fully custom board is, you know, you can you can start by just using, you know, some maybe larger uh, enclosures and, and basically just wiring these things together and, and making them feel like kind of more of a permanent uh, connection between them. And so those were the devices that, that we put into the field first were just, you know, a handful of, uh, you know, a, a Mega and a few breakout boards basically just slapped onto a metal plate latch the enclosure closed and and that was it um now the longevity of those wasn't great but uh but they did work for for enough time that uh that we could learn uh you know where where they started to fail and and move from there at at the company previous to macrofab at dynamic reception where i worked um our, one of the first products was a it's a motion control for cameras and it was a consumer device but it had an Arduino Uno in it with a shield and an enclosure. And we did thousands of those a year. And it, I mean, it got, they got dropped in swamps and still worked. That's amazing. So, it's, uh, it, I'm telling you, it happens much more often than, than people think. Yeah. It's just, it's just too easy not to. You know, you kind of have to find a reason to, to move away from them. Yeah. The, uh, the only reason we ended up moving away was um, it's a, it's, it ends up being a packaging problem because it's, because you have two PCBs now, basically, and there's, there's the header headers that are separating everything. And so one of my first jobs was to take that product and make it to a single board solution so we can make it thinner. And it also drops the bomb cost by 25 bucks because you don't have to buy an Arduino anymore. And, um, and you can charge the same amount because it's new and improved. So this is, this is actually a, a really interesting point that you bring up that, that we very much actually felt at our company, too, which is you had your hands forced into basically moving to a custom board. In other words, what you were trying to accomplish, you, f- you basically could not do if you stayed um, with that same setup uh, where you had you know, off-the-shelf uh, you know, boards that you were slapping together. The same exact thing happened for us, just with kind of a different failure mode. And so what we had you know, going off of that same device where we had a few breakup boards that were just wired together, we had vibration problems. And so we were going and installing this on equipment that was vibrating to an insane degree. And what would end up happening is wires would just pop out all over the place. And so we've got, you know, a a full inbox of angry customers basically saying, you know, hey, guys, nothing's working. What are we going to do here? Um, And, and, you know, that that was the forcing function for us that that made us say, okay, we've got to go and figure out how to draw up a custom circuit board, um, which we had never done before. Basically, everything was completely off the shelf up until that moment. I would have just used a bunch of hot glue. (laughs) (laughs) 
I wonder if hot glue is class one div one compliant. <laughs> as long as you meet your IP, I bet you could do it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, speaking about that is so the regulations and certifications for industrial devices. Yeah. Um, how do you make that work when you are first starting out? Because I mean, you start out and it's just like you and a couple people, if that, and <laughs> you have to get these tests and certifications done, and they they do cost quite a bit of money. Yeah, Th- this is a really hard problem. And actually, I-, I talk to companies on a fairly regular basis that say, when should I do this? How should I do this? What do I need? Um, and the-, the range of devices that exist out there and the types of certifications is, is enormous. There- there's no way a single person could possibly know, you know, uh, even-, even in a single category, kind of what's needed for all of the, all of the stuff everywhere. Um, to-, to compound that, the regulations are different in different countries. If you want to be in Canada versus the U.S., you have different regulations. In, in Europe and, and in Asia, you have different regulations as well, which are, which are mostly the same, and, and, and some of the standards kind of share uh, most of their principles, but you may have different language requirements, different uh, font and text requirements, you know, things like that. Um, when, when we think about um, how this process started and when I talk to companies about this, um, I generally tell them that what they should do is have someone force them into this process. And what I mean by that is if you think that your customer is going to require something, that doesn't necessarily mean that that customer will require something. And so if you get started in oil and gas, you know, hazardous location, explosive gas environment with some, with some device um, and go and sell it on the market. You know, if if you don't even bother with the certification, you may actually find out that most of your customers want your sensor or device in non-hazardous locations, and you will have wasted a huge amount of resources, basically down the drain for nothing. And so, when you go and you know, as an early stage company, and have conversations with big industries, it's really really important to let those customers drive your decisions. And so, if they say to you, I will not install your equipment unless you are hazardous location certified. It's probably time to go and do that. Um, if it turns out that they say, hey, we really like your stuff and actually we have some you know, general application stuff, uh, you know, uh, uh, purpose with, with your, your equipment, that's much, much better for you because you won't even have to go down this road. Um, now, going off of the assumption that you will be forced into needing certifications at some point. This is an industry that tends to be generally geared towards bigger companies with lots of resources and largely favors specific testing labs that have tended to either write the standards historically or have the marketing dollars to make it seem like they have basically, you know, kind of owned the market. Um, it depends on what you want to do. So the big categories here are electrical, hazardous location, um, and and radio-related, FCC-kind of related uh, things. Now, there are plenty of other ones that I, I'm sure I'm not familiar with, but th- those are the ones that most uh, hobbyist hardware hacker-type companies are, are going to be encountering. Um, and what what I think is the is the best approach here is to really lean heavily on some of the experts in the space. Uh, 
And so what we did was, was twofold. The first thing was we found a lab that we really liked working with, that we had really good communication with, that was willing to be a little bit generous with us with respect to giving us some guidance that many labs are, are not willing to necessarily give. So that's one piece is, is find, find a lab that's going to be a good relationship partner for you. And the other is you almost definitely have to find someone that has done this before because unfortunately the standards that are out there are not put in a form that you can read and understand and say, okay, here's what my footprint and component values need to be. Someone that's done it before, they've got the calculations, they know what the distances need to be between components, they can do this kind of thing very quickly. And so your uh, freelance marketplaces online are an excellent source for finding people um, if you don't have anyone in your community that can, that can help with those topics. So finding a basically like engineering consultant that is in this field is your best bet then. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same as, you know, getting a legal document done. You know, your one option is to go and learn it from scratch and go to law school. The other is to, you know, you may pay a little bit more. But if you can hire someone for a couple hours um, at a reasonable fee, um, we have found great success uh, with going down that route. And uh, and, and, and often the, the types of freelancers that are that are assisting and, and consulting on those projects tend to get really interested and, and uh, you know, will often put in a bit of extra work to kind of learn about you and your company. Or come work for you. Yeah, exactly. If, if you've got the workload for it, I, I would highly recommend it. It's a it's a it's a very opaque trade for sure. <laughs> um, so I I have a question actually because yeah. I was in the oil field a lot um, right after college and so what is class one div one slash two what it, does that mean? So the two different divisions relate to essentially how explosive and how frequent explosive gas is present in a specific environment, and so. Um, if you think about um, the gas that comes out of an air compressor uh, at, you know, you're filling up your tires at a gas station. There's a bunch of gas that's right kind of near that thing. You know, you can, you can, you can, you can smell the fumes, you know, when you're right by there. If you move 10 feet away, you're probably not smelling any fumes, right? Um, and so the, the same type of calculation is essentially done in the oil field where we say if we're nearby some equipment that might be emanating fumes or, or might uh, be in a plant that has some particular piece of equipment that, that might have gases that flow through it or something like that, um, the, depending on how frequently and at what concentration, you may be classified in, in, a, in a class one or a class two uh, type environment. In, in ATEX, there's a class zero as well. Which is which is equivalent to to class one div one, in in the U.S. type scale, um, and so in the oil field specifically, if you're within five feet of a wellhead or an open uh, uh, port in a tank, things like this, you generally are in a in a class one division one environment. If you move further away, you're going to be classified in a div, division two type environment, which I believe is for the the subsequent fifteen feet. Uh, and then beyond that, your your kind of general application, which means you don't necessarily need uh, a hazardous location type certification. So, dumb question: Do they uh, is there a class one div one like cigarette lighter? 
There is class one, div one, almost everything. It's shocking how much stuff that's that's out there. If you go and look at a class one, div one power drill, something you could buy from you know your big boxes here for maybe forty bucks or less, probably now, depending on which big box you go to. Um, the class one, div one power drills are probably a, about a hundred to a thousand x the price of those things. Um, and the amount of electronics that they're actually packing in there is almost nothing different, um, depending on their their uh, their suppression method. Um, but yeah, the, I I don't know that they're specifically uh, you know lighters or anything like that. Um, but uh, I I would tend to doubt it. <laughs> you you know uh, at a previous company I worked at we we did a lot of class one div one testing and design work and. Um, uh, basically, any product that was Class One Div One, you could purchase as a Class One Div One, um, or you could just purchase it as a non-marked one. It's the exact same unit. We just lasered yes. on the 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 label and added, you know, a hundred and ten percent cost adder on there, and you're just paying for the fact that you that we put the label on there. Well, it's not just the label. You are also like ensuring that it's been tested. So it's like. If if well, all of them were tested, but yes, yeah. But I'm saying is, if your device caused a problem, it's on you. That's why you have that markup. Right, right. It's your insurance. You know, also <laughs> above and beyond the the class one div one stuff, there's actually also uh, groups that are in there, and and the groups beyond that define what kind of atmosphere they're in and what kind of gas they can, um, like acetylene or hydrogen or something like that. Taco Bell bathroom. Taco Bell, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's a specific That's the most group stringent for that, testing. But that would be right amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So there's uh, you have a you have a group on top of that as as well as uh, you know your your T class, which is effectively you know temperature related, um, and and you can have multiple certifications on a specific device. Almost every dev- device has multiple certifications. You can have multiple groups on devices, and so you know often we'll see. Class one, div one, groups A through D, um, and you know these these are very common things. And and when you go and send things off for a certification, you generally want to package them all uh, in in one one certification pass because it can be very expensive to go in and recertify things. So speaking yeah. of Taco Bell bathrooms, <laughs> uh, explosion proof devices, right? <laughs> um, so what what is an explosion proof device? Besides the fact that it won't ex- it won't explode, so like my cup here is an explosion proof device, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that it would be interesting to uh, to to make a, a whole Taco Bell bathroom into an explosion proof device. That would be that would fit some of, of your guys' recent themes of uh, you know useless <laughs> devices. Maybe actually that could be a very useful <laughs> device. That'd be very useful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so. Um, the, the, the way to think about this is, is kind of from the outside in. And what I mean by that is, you know, you, you have to decide firstly what regulation is required. And so in our case, you know, this is environmental related. Um, and so, so if you are in a hazardous location, you need to fulfill a specific set of requirements, um, you know, that, that, is all, that are almost definitely written by UL. Um, and, and those requirements essentially say that you will not do something in some specific conditions. Um, and, and so when it comes to a hazardous location, it's, it's largely uh, ignition related. 
Uh, for the most part, though, you know, there are other provisions in there that you have to fill, including ingress protection. Um, in order to fulfill anything related to class one, division one, you do need ingress protection as well. Um, and so w th there are several methods that you can use to fulfill the requirements of division one or division two requirements. And so one of those methods is explosion proofing. Um, and so when you see, you know, in big industrial devices, you know, they have these very robust, you know, thick metal enclosures. Those generally are using explosion proofing as the method to fulfill those requirements. Explosion proofing is physical containment. It means that actually a spark can ignite, but that spark and ignition must be contained physically within the enclosure. So that's one big category that gets used. It's a very popular method. There are, there's an abundance of off-the-shelf explosion-proof devices that exist um, that anyone can buy. They're not terribly expensive, um, but in general, you know, these are these are really simple ways uh, for for a low cost that you can you can try to fulfill the requirements of, of Division One. Another method that can be used is, is electrical containment. It's basically, you know, energy containment. And what that means is you have designed a circuit so that any lightning strike, for example, you know, any surge that comes into your electronics will basically be moved to a location that will not cause a spark to, to ignite in, at all or, or the, the spark to exist at all. And so this is called intrinsically safe which means kind of it doesn't really matter very much what happens on the outside of the device. Um, any of that can be contained electrically based on the design of the device. And so the off-the-shelf components that, that usually fulfill this are, are Zener barriers. You can look for intrinsically safe barriers um, that exist, you know, largely, you know, for, for, for DIN rails and, and things like that. Um, the circuits themselves, you can, you can usually find a basic schematic online. It's about five components that you can place as an SMD on your circuit board, and that will do it. So you're talking design work plus maybe $1 worth of SMD components, and, uh, and you can fulfill intrinsically safe uh, you know, in, in most circumstances. And so those are you know, two ways that you can fulfill those requirements. There are a few others that are, that are far less common. Um, but, you know, pick the one generally that, that suits you best. Um, one is more expensive uh, on a per unit basis and, and has a lower upfront cost. That's the explosion proof. Um, explosion proof is, is more upfront cost for design. But, you know, over the long run, if you expect to do anything uh, w with any kind of reasonable volume, uh, intrinsically safe is, is really the favored method, in my opinion. Yeah, also with Intrinsically Safe, um, UL and ATEX and, and a lot of the other bodies will also have a uh, two really significant numbers that uh, apply to whatever your industry is or whatever the application is, and that is the maximum amount of capacitance that the whole circuit will have. So you can't just make some rando design with a bazillion microfarads on the front end, um, but they also will dictate what's the maximum energy that can be dissipated at any point in time uh and you have to prove that your circuit you know if it were to discharge uh violently what is what is the total joules that would be released by your circuit at any one point in time and if it's beneath their threshold level then it it, it passes intrinsically safe 
uh, a fun little yeah. exercise you can do, uh, even just like a little game in your head, and take any active circuit or any active element in your circuit, uh, processor, regulator, whatever, um, and just pretend like it stopped being whatever it was and turned into a giant blob of solder. What would your circuit do? Like, if your processor connected every single pin to every other single pin on the processor, what would the circuit as a whole do? If it dissipates beneath their threshold of energy, then you're fine. Yep. And, and this is more or less the, the, the type of, uh, of analysis that the, that the testing labs go through. Um, you know, what, what, there's kind of a secondary branch in, in intrinsically safe if, if people go that route that, that, Stephen, you kind of mentioned. One is that the, the labs will certify you specifically to whatever you're connecting to. Um, and so that certification will say this fulfills the requirements if these two specific things are connected. You know, for the most part, that other thing is already certified. The other is uh, is called entity parameters, which is kind of what you were mentioning as well, which is where um, the certification more or less says, so long as you um, are within these specific ranges of resistance, capacitance, inductance, then you're good to hook up basically whatever you want, so long as that other thing is is also certified. Um, and so, you know, if you need that kind of flexibility, the entity parameters is is a really nice route to go. If you've got, uh, you know, a simple product that's going to be hooked up to um, the same kind of thing in, in high volume, I think that the fixed route is actually is a simpler process when it comes to certification. Um, you know, it, of these kind of three options, explosion proof um, and, and the two intrinsically safe options, the entity parameter intrinsically safe option is definitely the most sensitive when it comes to certification and the one that is probably most likely to result in in revisions that are needed in order to to fulfill and pass um but uh you know our our business dictated it and uh and so that's the route we've gone kind of across the board um and that's largely related to you know needing a whole bunch of different types of sensors um that we would need to hook up here and so we basically said you know we're going to make this investment kind of up front that that will allow us to make life much, much easier down the line and, uh, and not be bogged down and, and worried about being able to, to get new customers and, and make sure that our certifications are all in line. We kind of said, let's, uh, let's nick this uh, as, as quickly as possible and, and go the entity parameter route. For sure. Um, so how about intrinsically safe barriers and, and uh, putting those in your installation? You know, this is a size dependent type, uh, type setup. I, I think um, in, in the oil field in particular, and in a lot of industrial applications, you know, these are, uh, you know, the, the kind of off the shelf intrinsically safe barriers are a really nice and, and simple way to go. You can buy them, you know, with, uh, you know, your, your big, uh, electronics distributors in the U S and, uh, you know, if you, if you need to do something kind of at, at low volume, I think it's a, it's a really good option, um, c- compared to what it, would actually take to go and, and design your own and, and get it, you know, built into a custom PCB. I would imagine your break even is a, is pretty low. Cause I think the the off the shelf intrinsically bar- intrinsically safe barriers are, are pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. You're probably talking about maybe a 20 unit payback kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but certainly for getting something in your hands and, and testing it and, and making sure that you kind of understand um, how the electricity is flowing and, and how everything is actually working there. 
um, those those things are you know are are a good starting point. I think. For sure, for sure, and and anytime you see, um, you know, a, a product that has you know fifteen twenty marks on it. Uh, the, the the mark of the beast. Uh, you you can you can just immediately say, well, this is going to be a lot. This is going to cost me. <laughs> yep, for sure, for sure. Certifications are hard. They're expensive. Um, do do them if you need to. That's that's really what I would say. Is you know we're 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 only now, you know, starting to go back and and you know as we're iterating on our device, um, to to make changes. You know, as particularly there are new battery chemistries that are coming out. You know, every single thing that you change once you've certified a device. Um, so if as, assuming that it is a, um, a critical component, anything you change at all uh, warrants a, a recertification. And so, you know, you're you're in the four figures basically at a minimum any time you want to touch something like that. Yeah, you have to be really, really confident that, first of all, your product is where it's at when you've certified it. And you also have to be extremely confident um, if you're ever going to make a change, because it it doesn't happen fast and it costs a lot of money. I, I would imagine um, making sure your supply chain is pretty robust for however long you're going to sell that product for. Because if you have to do a part substitute, that sounds pretty awful. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you get that end of life notification on one of your critical po- components, and that's uh, you're straight that's to a, the bar that's a afterwards. Big timer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yep, for for sure that's true. Yeah, and and you know the the other thing that I'll mention on this front is there are I think there's over 500 laboratories that are that are out there in the world of which you know there are, there are a lot in the United States. Um you know, when we went and and started to to bid this out, you know, we went to, you know, your your big name brands and and we went to some of the smaller ones as well. And you know, there are some industries that that generally really favor some of the big name labs. And when I say favor in this context, really what I mean is it's very difficult to sell products unless you have what, you know, a, a two letter kind of sticker um, on, on your product. And in cases like that, you know, you've got to let sales drive, right? So you basically have to go to those labs and, and, uh, and, and kind of suck it up um, so to speak. However, you know, we've found so much more flexibility than we expected in in our decision to to use uh, you know one of the the smaller labs um, that we've been really pleasantly surprised. And so, you know, it, I think it's good to understand you know kind of the baseline for for people that are out there that are thinking about going for hazardous location certifications or or any kind of certification to go and and get your baseline. You know, get get your feet in the water with uh, with bids. You know, at some of the the bigger labs, and then you know, go a little bit further and and take a look at some of the other labs that are that are out there in the U.S. It's really nice to find something locally, um, and so you know, I've done a handful of visits to to our lab uh, that that we use primarily, which is uh, just outside of Atlanta. Um, but if you've got something locally, um, try and find them. Go visit them. Go sit down and and talk to them and and get a tour of the shop. Um, because you know you'll find, uh, as with anything, face to face is a lot easier than than uh, you know just kind of sticking to email communication. And uh, there are uh, there are a lot of things you know behind the scenes that those companies can do to to set you in the right direction. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, on top of the the technical piece, the cost piece is, is a big thing too. And so, when you're looking at your big names versus your your smaller names. 
you know, you're not just talking about five to 10% differences in, in certification costs. You may be looking at kind of a two or three X uh, kind of thing. So it, it really is a, a big difference between the costs there. And, and for what you get, you, some companies may not find that it's worth it. So it's, it's a worthy exercise to take a look out there. For sure. And if you know you need that, or if you already have customers ringing the bell saying, I'll buy your thing if it has whatever stamp on it, do that early. Do it early in the process. Yep, for sure. This is this goes back to, you know, get stuff in front of customers ASAP, because you have no idea before you sit in that room if they're going to say, I need this lab, or uh, if you can go to a smaller lab, or if you need no lab. Um, and so, you know, just speed up that iteration cycle as much as possible. Talk to customers as much as possible. You know, we drill this in all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what we talk about internally, you know, at Flow Command is, you know, how can we make as, as few decisions as possible? And, and really what that means is, you know, how can we let customers drive what we're doing to, to the maximum possible extent? And so we try to, to kind of lean on them as, as much as, as is reasonable to, to kind of tell us and, and give us feedback on where we should be going, not only from a product standpoint, um, but from, you know, an R&D standpoint, from an operation standpoint, a customer service standpoint, you know, those are the people that are going to give you probably the, the best and, and most honest feedback versus, you know, just kind of sitting in an echo chamber inside your company. So thank you, Jeff, for coming on to our podcast. Yeah, Absolutely. Steven, do you have any other questions? No, no, I, th- I think that was really fun. I uh, really appreciate you coming on, Jeff. And uh, this isn't something that we normally talk about. Uh, we, don't, we don't have a lot of guests that um, have had a lot of flavor in this world. So I appreciate you coming in uh, and, and enlightening us about it. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. And so, Jeff, where can people find you and find out more about Flow Command? Yep. So our website is flowcommand.com, F-L-O-W-C-O-M-M-A-N-D. Uh, my email is jeff at flowcommand, J-E-F-F, the American spelling. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, easily accessible in, in both of those places. Hey, everyone just sent tons of emails to Jeff saying, thank you for being on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I, I'm not an inbox zero person, so... It's, it, it doesn't affect me very much. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, with that, would you like to sign us out? Absolutely. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Jeff Garoon. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You get there by going to MacFab.com slash Slack. It will redirect to the invite page. Bam, you're in. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.